Across the Margin, the podcast. My name is Michael Shields. I am your host, and we are back after uh, about a month hiatus. ATM, the podcast, returns, and uh, we got a great deal in store for you throughout this next month. Um, the uh, reason for that brief pause in episodes is the exact reason we are here today, as the focus of this episode is on a book that ATM Publishing has been working on that was released just last week. For those not in the know, ATM Publishing is the publishing imprint of Across the Margin, where we periodically release books into the world. We have uh, three slated for this calendar year, and the first one we are extremely proud of, titled The Bounce and the Echo by Ian Johnson. Ian is a former pro basketball player, one who for the first three decades of existence saw his life revolve entirely around the game of basketball. He was the real deal. He played alongside Carmelo Anthony at the prestigious Oak Hill Academy and was the star at Davidson College leading into the Stephon Curry era. He went on to play five pro seasons in Europe, winning multiple championships there. But in many ways, Ian was leading a double life, both as a committed athlete who thrived on competition and also as a skeptical observer who struggled to accept that he was devoting his entire soul to a game. The Bouts in the Echo is a very deep book. It's a very personal and vulnerable memoir while Ian confronts some serious mental health concerns uh, that are very relatable and that plagued his career and his life. It examines Ian's struggles with retirement from the game and what it meant at that point to start anew. It's truly the tale of a player attempting to find peace with the game he so desperately wanted to love. And on top of all this, it recounts a bevy of pivotal moments and people throughout the history of the NBA that... uh, or basketball uh, in general, that made the game what it is today. And, and it even dives in and examines what, um, what stewards of the game and, and of all of sports really uh, could do better in preparing uh, children and those that they teach uh, the sports to for life. So there's a lot going on in the Bounce and the Echo. I have uh, no doubt you'll love it. I'm super proud of being a part of it. It's available now at... Uh, at acrossthemargin.com, you uh, click on the shop button at the top of the page, and it's on Amazon, select bookstores, it's out there. So grab a copy. I'm sure you will enjoy it, uh, as I said. And then before we dig into this interview with Ian, um, just a reminder that Across the Margin, the podcast, is it, the podcast is in the loop and part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts connecting fans of the arts with content they are sure to love. Go to OsirisPod.com to check out the family of podcasts there. Um, They have a new weekly pod that you're going to want to check out, particularly music fans. It's called The Drop, and it has, uh, uh, it's it's fairly terse, which is, you know, good for for just, it's a weekly news thing, does a lot of music news, and 
Um, so it's like your shot in the arm of music and Osiris news. Check that out. And uh, hey, let's get into it. Um, here is my interview with the author of The Bounce and the Echo, Ian Johnson. Ian. Thank you so much for uh, making the time and being here with me today. Um, excited thank, about this whole project. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, we have to start just kind of at ground zero. And, uh, um, you know, what, I guess, why did you write this book? What, what, what compelled you to tell your story in this way? So the book was a way for me as a retired athlete to put into writing everything that I'd wish I'd known when I played. Mm-hmm. And it's a way for me now as a coach to express how I feel about sports and athletes today. So if you look at the sporting landscape, not just the athletes, but the coaches, administrators, parents, media, Mm -hmm. so much of sports is based on either outright lies or kind of half-true myths. And I think it's important that it's our responsibility as as. Uh, caretakers of sports mm-hmm. to expose children and people that want to hear it, some of what I think are truths yeah. about the game. Yeah. So when I played, I, f- I finished my playing career in 2011. Mm-hmm. You were t- what, 27 at that time? 27 yeah. years old. And once I got done, I kind of went cold turkey with the game. I spent about three years. Didn't touch a ball, didn't shoot a ball, didn't read about basketball. Just fully, just, just, just fully, fully separated back. myself yeah. from the game. And this yeah. was almost involuntarily. It was mm-hmm. almost like the game spat me out. I said, "Don't come back." Yeah. And then in 2014, almost by accident, I didn't want to just try to make some money. I, I got into coaching. I was working at uh, Whole Foods parking lot at the time, mm-hmm. pushing carts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then to kind of complement that, I said, "You know what? I'll." I'll Try to coaching some kids. Yeah, yeah. And then it was a, a Sunday morning that I walked into the, a gym as a coach for the first time. And then, you know, most of the other coaches that were there were huddling on the sidelines drinking their coffee. Mm-hmm. But then I, I couldn't help myself. I just went and grabbed the ball. Yeah. And I started going through some of the warm up drills that I did as a player. Yeah, like the routines or the routines, yeah, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Shooting my, my close layups and then working my way out. Uh-huh. And so you, you can imagine me at 31 years old. Excuse me. At, uh, 30 years old, yeah. just sitting there with a bunch of 10-year-olds, you know, thinking that I was one of them. <laughs> and then that was kind of the first realization that I, I didn't really know myself away from the game, mm-hmm. and it was time time to learn. So you, so after that, after that moment, you stepped back, and so the book, in a lot of ways, could have been looked at as, like, therapy, a way to kind of express exactly. these ideas that, exactly. uh, that were coming to you looking at your career in hindsight. So I wanted to be a novelist, as I think most writers start out wishing they could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was writing this book about two basketball players, and then the basketball players in the book, I couldn't get more than 50 pages. They kept, I kept getting stuck. And that was a, very obviously now, in retrospect, representative of where I was. Mm. All I could do was put myself in the game. I had no idea how to make, make sense of it. Yeah. And then uh, definitely, like you said, as, as therapy... Just started writing about my career, trying mm-hmm. to be trying to be honest, see if I could work through some of some of those things, and yeah. eventually, with across the margin, first chapter got published. Yep. It was a very raw and open chapter, and, mm-hmm. you know, which we folded into the book in a good way. Folded it was, into it was, the book. It was one of those things where uh, when Ian um, sent me his first story uh, about him playing overseas, you know, we we started talking and. 
you know, one of the things I asked is, is there more? And that kind of led us to where we are here. So there's a lot of things I obviously love about the book. I love that it's kind of like a behind-the-scenes look at uh, a pro basketball player's career. It really takes you behind the curtain there. It's, um, you know, they're, they're, we're going to talk about mental health. It, it delves into a lot of uh, honest and vulnerable issues that you talk about. But one thing it also does is it's steeped in the history of basketball. And, um, and, and why did you decide to kind of uh, put in the history of basketball within this personal narrative that is the bounce and the echo? Mm-hmm. So I like to think of, a, of about an astronaut that goes up into space and looks down on the Earth. Yeah, cool. When, when that astronaut goes back to Earth, the Earth is never the same. Mm-hmm. It's always a lot smaller, at the same time a lot more infinite. Mm. And then as, as I was working on this book, I kept trying to zoom out on my career. And then the more you zoom out, the more the whole of basketball has to be incorporated. And when a player looks at the game, mm-hmm. it kind of ch- changes his whole perspective. We tend to see in today's age basketball as a very static, eternal thing. Mm-hmm. But... If the course of basketball from 1891, when it was first played, mm-hmm. to now, mm-hmm. it's actually a very transient, ephemeral uh, being. Being, yeah. yeah. And it's it's constantly changing mm-hmm. and, and being reinterpreted. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I think, for any student of the game, whether you're playing or just a fan, it's, yeah. it's important to include that. Yeah. That's why I wanted to have it in there. Absolutely. That's what, that's the fun part about it. Even like people who don't. You know, this this you can come at this book not even liking sports because it's just it is a personal net narrative that delves into so many human issues. But along the way, you're gonna learn some some yeah. cool points like about uh, uh, the history of basketball or the people who crafted it to where it came. And I think some of those people that you mentioned uh, are not really even given enough credit. And so, yeah. so I think that's a lot of there's fun. A, def- definitely a lot of stewards of the game. Stewards, yes. And then there's so so many different examples of sports that for me. Even though I've spent 20 years of my life fully immersed in the game, they were just shocking and fascinating and fun to, to realize. Mm-hmm. So when we think about out of bounds, for example, yeah. today, we have a baseline and a sideline, and the, the player that throws it out, the opposite team gets the ball. That seems to be the, the eternal rule. Mm-hmm. Well, for the first few decades of the game, mm-hmm. this wasn't the case. Which is crazy. <laughs> and so the rule was when the ball passed across the baseline or the sideline. Uh-huh. It was the first player from either team that touched the ball that was allowed to get it. And so the fans were often involved in the game when players would come crashing up into the sideline. They'd, yeah. they'd uh, you know, kind of help or hinder whichever team they wanted, they wanted to yeah. get it. Yeah. And then a lot of the early games were played in old YMCA's, mm-hmm. which if you've ever been into an old YMCA, you know they have those elevated tracks oh, yeah, around, yeah. around yeah. the court. Yeah. And so what would happen when the ball bounced up there people would forget the stairs and then they'd kind of make a little pyramid and heave each other up <laughs> over the railing. And this is something that teams practice. Yeah. Oh, really? It's, and it's you know, interesting to imagine teams practicing something like that yeah, yeah. today. Yeah. So that's the history of basketball is just full of those kind of anecdotes and uh, the kind of tidbits that, that modern players, myself included, never yeah. really thought about. Absolutely. And yeah, I didn't either until I was, I was reading your book. But, um, it's not only the history of basketball or the analysis of uh, basketball that this book is about. I mean, you you go at sports in general in a way, and, and uh, you know discuss um, how we look at sports, how we talk about sports. What's your what was your aim there? 
So no, nobody knows for for certain how sports evolved, mm -hmm. but a, a predominant theory holds that sports began as a way for armies to practice warfare. Mm. So we'd have uh, that makes sense. Team sports were originally mimicking army versus armies, and individual sports were originally meant to simulate man-to-man -man combat, hand-to-hand yeah. -hand yeah. combat. Yeah. And the oldest example of sports in Western culture comes from Homer's The Iliad. And as I was researching basketball, I kept zooming out mm -hmm. on basketball, and eventually I got into the history of sports. Mm -hmm. And then I came across the, the Iliad, mm -hmm. and towards the end of the Iliad, they have the funeral games that Achilles throws in honor of his slain brother, Petroclus, mm -hmm. who was just killed by Hector. Mm -hmm. And so the Greek army and the Trojan army, they, they call a 10-day truce to honor Petroclus. And in these 10 days, Achilles decides to throw these funeral games. And then these games consist of javelin, boxing, mm -hmm. wrestling, mm -hmm. chariot racing, mm -hmm. shot, a version of the shot put, mm -hmm. sprinting, a lot of the, the same sports that we associate with track and field today. Yeah, Olympics, yeah. And when you read the, about the funeral games, you get the sense that sports are a way for men to prove themselves mm -hmm. because sports mimic war. Mm -hmm. And the way that men prove themselves in Achilles' time was by killing other men and by putting down other men and by winning the battle of words to put other men down. And I bring this up now because 3,000 years later, things haven't changed. Yeah. Sports, sports are still the same, and particularly for men, the ways we prove ourselves as men is still the same. Yeah. There's perhaps a little room for things like cooperation and compassion yeah. and, and so on, but the, the best way for a man to become a man is to kill another man, yeah. whether that's metaphorical. Show him up in some way. Show him up yeah. in some way. Yeah. And that is the lesson we still teach our kids. Now, why is that important? Like, we, we are human beings, and we were built on our competitive instincts. We wouldn't be here without competing and killing our, our fellow man for that that last mammoth meat or yeah, yeah. take your pick. Yeah. But uh, the difference between then and now is that in Homer's time or in Achilles' time, there were only several million people on the planet and the planet could sustain warfare, could sustain all this competitiveness. But now we have seven and a half billion people on the planet and if we keep competing the way we are, whether that's in capitalistic endeavors or whether that's on the court. And if we keep teaching our kids this mindset and they grow up to keep thinking that I have to crush my fellow man for resources, for honor and so on, we're going to choke ourselves to death. Mm -hmm. And I think that's being played out now in issues like climate change and, and uh, the, you know, take your pick deforestation and the poverty and so on. Yeah. So it seems like... And, um, and, and this is definitely discussed in the book, but it seems like you're looking for a new narrative, a new way to look at it, a new, um, you know, that, that what everything you're just saying, it, it sounds outdated and not the right way. So what, definitely. and this is, a, you know, kind of a big question, but what, what would that new narrative be? So I, th I think the best place to start with this new narrative would be with the way we coach our kids okay. and, and youth sports. It's impossible to see the NBA or even colleges all of a sudden saying, hey, we're, we're going to read the Iliad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're yeah, going yeah. to try to make changes. So if, I think if we, if we start by trying to coach our kids differently, mm -hmm. the, their formative years 
would be different and they yeah. could perhaps grow up with a different mindset. So what would some of those changes look like? Mm-hmm. The first change, and some of these are discussed more in depth in the book, sure. the first change would be that in youth sports, up until middle school, mm-hmm. we would eliminate scorekeeping and stat keeping. Mm-hmm. So players would show up to the gym, but the scoreboard would be kept off. Yeah. And they would, they would play to try to be in the moment mm-hmm. and try to become themselves. Mm-hmm. And hypoth- I love that. Hypothetically, what this would do would eliminate a lot of pressure for both players and coaches mm-hmm. associated with winning and trying to get stats. Yeah. Um, one second, please. Thank you. We're, uh, we're in a hotel right now in Pittsburgh after uh, our book launch event last night. Uh, sorry about the interruption, Ian. It's housekeeping. Yeah. Should I restart? <laughs> no, it's fine. Yeah, right. yeah. Wherever you so were. The uh, talking about having no scorekeeping and stack keeping until middle school yeah. for for players, mm-hmm. and what that would do would be eliminate the pressure associated with winning for both coaches and and the, yeah. and the players. Cool idea. And the uh, now imagine trying to do something like that to the NBA impossible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the, the uh, second suggestion that I have would be to switch teams every week for all the players. So you have your league, different geographical locations, mm-hmm. different socioeconomic backgrounds, and the players all show up to play at, at a gym on mm-hmm. a Saturday. And instead of having teams based on where people live and so the associated economic factors, yeah. players would be split up almost willy-nilly week to week. To week. Mm-hmm. And what that would force players to do would be to learn to cooperate each week yeah. with different types of players, yeah. different types of people. And secondly, what that would do would be to help eliminate the us versus them mentality, uh, which, yeah. is, which is so widespread. Like, yeah, the them is us, mm-hmm. like, continually. you kind of putting, you know, like, who your adversary is is your teammate, the next mm-hmm. thing. So that's changing your mindset right away. Yeah. So instead of looking at just my neighborhood as a team, mm-hmm. which it is, yeah. but we can also start to include the community at large, the city at large, mm-hmm. and then eventually, from a theoretical standpoint, the, the planet that large, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. And so when these kids grow up, they think, okay, I'm, I'm watching the news and there's climate change is such a big issue, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be me versus them about yeah. the, the facts of it, about yeah. who gets the resources. Yeah. I, I've learned as a, as a child some lessons, and it's not, youth sports isn't going to be the only answer. No, no, I've no. learned some lessons that yeah. will help me be able to address these that kinds of issues. All in together now. All in it's together. All, it's the whole thing. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I also, just to kind of jump off that, I, I, I always get upset about the imaginary lines that divide us, uh, you know, country by country, because it does, yeah. it sets up a situation where you're looking at us versus them instead of, you know, human beings exactly. on a planet that, that could be working together and, you know, think of all the ills that exactly. happen because of that type of situation. Exactly. So let's dig into it a little bit. This book, um, you know, it, it, not that what we're talking about beforehand is surface at all. These are deep issues that can affect people. But this book touches on some very relatable and um, important, and, um, uh, uh, you know, some mental health issues and, and some intense uh, things that you dealt with, I'm sure you are dealing with. And, um, and I have to commend you how, how um, honest you approached it. Um, can you speak on some about... Um, you know, what you dealt with and what you talk about when it comes to mental health in this book? Mm-hmm. So in the book, I talk pretty openly about the obsessive compulsive symptoms that I experienced as a child, mm-hmm. as experienced throughout my playing career, and mm-hmm. that I still experience today. 
And there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to do that. The first part is because the obsessive compulsive symptoms are a big part of who I am yeah. as a human being. And to omit those, the impact of those symptoms on my life and my playing career would be to tell an incomplete story. It would be dishonest as well, dishonest, which exactly. is the readers going to pick up on right away. Yeah, And uh, I think readers have a, a great sense of what an author is trying to puff up his, his own ego. Yeah. And when he's withholding things, the uh, reader has a good sense of when pieces are missing. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's one reason I wanted, wanted to include that. The second reason deals with all the millions and millions of athletes and human beings out there today who are silently suffering from diagnosable and conditions which, if they were just made aware of or just had help for, Mm -hmm. would be eased significantly. The uh, past few years have seen really significant athletes come forward Mm -hmm. talking about their mental health issues. Kevin Love yeah. and his panic attacks, mm-hmm. DeMar DeRozan, mm-hmm. DeRozan, his depression, yep. Royce White and his obsessive compulsive yep. symptoms, Chamique yep. Holtzclaw and oh, all her, her that one, yeah. uh, chronic depression. Mm-hmm. It seems so brave because there's such a stigma and like, you know, whether in any sport, but in I see it in basketball, it's just, you know, it is about being tough, mm-hmm. you know, chinks in the armor. And so it's, 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 it's a very brave move to come forward and saying that, but by the numbers, by every account, there has to be more people who are dealing mm-hmm. with with things they don't want to talk about, and that's what's so cool about talking about it. And because you know, once once someone is, it allows others to feel comfortable, like, oh, yeah, him too, me too. Yeah. And the, the tough thing for these for these kids is that they see these athletes coming forward towards the end of their careers mm-hmm. or after they're retired. Kevin Love has long been established in the NBA before yep. he came forward. Before he, yep. DeMar DeRozan, same thing. Chimique yeah. Koskal was basically retired yeah. before she came out. Jerry West just wrote a great memoir about his life when she talks about his depression. But he didn't, oh, really? He didn't talk about it until he was 80-some years yeah. old. Michael Phelps, same thing mm-hmm. with, with his mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Not until he had 20-some gold medals yeah. did he feel comfortable sharing this. Yeah. And we can debate whether or not it was good or bad for them during their career to come forward but from my perspective and from the perspective of all these athletes talking about their mental health issues they wish they could go back and and, and have been more honest and gotten help earlier well, yeah. they would have been a, been a better athlete yeah. been a more realized human being yeah and that's and probably been happier like probably been happier yeah, yeah exactly find, find more, more peaceful peaceful, yeah. peaceful with, with more, more in terms of them and able to understand it more and get help or discuss exactly. it or, or exactly so when like I think that. about my own career as well yeah. I think I had a, a decent career and perhaps some of the obsessive compulsiveness in me helped me drive but mm-hmm. I, I know undoubtedly that I would have been a much better player yeah made more money yeah, yeah. had more success enjoyed my time a lot more yep. if I had been able at 10 or 15 or even 20 years of age to discuss it to discuss it, it. maybe would, get help to get to help, get help yeah. and I would I would still be playing today you would you would if, wouldn't you if, if I had <laughs> been different part of the reason I retired was because I needed to make sense of yeah, myself yeah. it just got to be that time wow that's intense yeah oh, cool um, so uh, I, I want to kind of steer us towards um, getting some of the books uh, some of the words in the book um uh, here in this uh, episode of the podcast. So, uh, 
um, another layer in this book is discussing and coming to sense with and and just understanding why you compete, why you were playing, why you were doing something. So there's this point in the book, which I love. It gets really, really... It's a, it's a fun fun way that you tackled this, where... Um, in, in, I'm going to ask you to help me set this up, but it's it's about why you compete. And um, so uh, steer me where I'm going here, because you, you, you talk... You're, you basically... The way you tackle it is you start answering a question to one of your GMs that was asked. Mm -hmm. So I I think most athletes play. They start playing at a young age because their parents sign them up for youth soccer or youth basketball or swimming or gymnastics or dancing, whatever. And then they they keep playing. Mm -hmm. And then sports has become such a part of their life that they never really, no matter how far they go, stop and ask themselves why they they play. And in this part of the book... I'm in the Czech Republic. It's halfway through my rookie season as a professional. And the GM of my Czech team was a guy named Dalek. Yeah. He was kind of a squirrely guy. What an interesting character. Squirrely yeah. guy. Yeah, squirrely indeed. Very, very serious. Took himself very seriously. Uh-huh. And then he invited me over for dinner one night. And we're, as we're sitting there eating, all of a sudden he interrupts the dinner to ask me why I played basketball, why I competed. And I didn't have the self-awareness or the uh, emotional fluency at the time to answer him honestly. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I did in this book was to take a, a look back at that moment and see how I might have answered if I had been able yep. to be honest. Yep. So here's, here's how I might have answered. Please. Thank you. And this is uh, written in the form of a response to Dalek. To Dalek. That's if yep. he's in the room. Well, gee, Dalek, that's a great question. I'll take a stab at it. Why not? So why do I play? Why do I compete? Well, my dad's tall and my mom's not short. And my grandfather was 6'6 back in the days when 6'6 was like a crane. So I have the height. I played other sports growing up too, notably soccer. And I actually liked soccer as much as basketball for a while. But then in eighth grade, I got cut from my travel soccer team, which I took pretty hard. That same year, I averaged 30-some points a game in a competitive local YMCA basketball league, and I got a little bit more crane-like myself and started playing some decent AAU ball. So things were kind of falling into place, and by the time I reached high school, it was pretty much a given. I tried for the team, because that's what tall people with potential do. Am I right, Dalek? Mm -hmm. They tried to make it. Anyway, I made junior varsity and played really well, and by the end of the year, people were talking about my promising future in varsity. They said I could play in college, maybe on scholarship. At the time, basketball was mostly fun, Dalek. I liked being good at it and loved the moments when I could just play. It made me anxious, but not that kind of anxious. I had these weird superstitions, you might call them symptoms, that were kind of odd when I thought about them, but everybody had superstitions. I didn't think about why I played. There was no need. It would have been like asking a kid on the playground why he's having fun. My sophomore year, Dalek, I started getting letters from colleges, early pitches from coaches who'd eventually offer me four-year scholarships worth six figures to come play at their schools. After my junior season, my AAU coach thought it would be a good idea if I left Charlottesville to play my senior year for Oak Hill Academy, some boarding school I'd never heard of in Bodung, Virginia. I ended up going, Dalek, 
pretty much exclusively for basketball reasons, and if I'm leaving home before I really have to, if I'm giving up my senior year at home for basketball's sake, I guess that means I'm pretty invested in the game. Anyway, I committed to play college ball at Davidson, and man, Dalek, once you're playing Division I, that's pretty much your life. Suddenly, your whole existence revolves around hooping, if it didn't already before. And then you play decently in college, and people start talking about pro ball, maybe not the NBA, but you're definitely good enough to play in some high-level European leagues. People keep telling you you can make it overseas, but you're still not sure what that means, making it, as the definition is perpetually tied to an ambiguous achievement that is continuously bumped further and further into the future. Making it is only a carrot, you realize. It's like you play growing up only to make the high school team, and then you play high school only to get to college, and then you play college only to get to the pros, and you play well in the pros only to earn your next contract, and so on. When do you actually get there? Part of you questions why you want to keep playing after college, but what other option is there? It's not like you can see yourself in finance or dentistry or something mundane like that. And besides, you're still pretty raw when it comes to making decisions for yourself. It sucks, Dalek, because the more you keep investing, the more you have to keep playing to keep validating that additional investment. I mean, think about it. If you gave up a, quote, regular college experience, the kind of sport-free college experience that years later, when you reflect, you sometimes wish you had, then you'd probably go to lengths to make that sacrifice worth it. Plus, who quits a lifelong pursuit right when he's about to start making money from it? Are you starting to see, Dalek, why I play and compete? Let's say you were me. If you gave up basketball, what would you do? What exactly is your skill set otherwise? Do you have any idea? You can't honestly tell me you have any clue about yourself away from the game. You play basketball, that's what you know how to do, and so you keep playing it. The sport is you, and you are the sport. This type of reversible sentence is called a chiasmus, which you might have learned in the advanced English classes you never took in college because you felt so bogged down with balling. Sure, often basketball's not fun. Often it makes you super anxious. And yes, that kind of anxious. But you don't know anything else. Basketball has become you, and you have become basketball. The bounce of a ball and the resounding echo in the empty gym, the the echo extra loud in the shell of your life that you hope won't be as empty once you walk off the court. That's your meditative gong, the bounce and the echo. The cheers from fans when you score, the approval of coaches, and high fives from teammates. These are the fuels that feed your self-worth. Your name stitched across the back of your jersey is your identity, and your stat line is your social security number. Walk away from this, and you have no idea who you are, so you keep playing. You have to keep playing, and the longer you stay in the game, the harder it is to see yourself as anything other than a basketball player. So you stay in the game to stay who you are. That's awesome. That is really that's really really awesome. The uh, and um, listeners and anyone who uh, you can see right there where we uh, the title came from. That bounce and that echo. Wow, that's deep. That's really that's. I mean, you're really uh, that's, that's that's such a. Uh, wow, I have a lot to lot to say about that. Thank you. And I, I I know that's not just me talking. This isn't an isolated instance. I think. As someone who was wrapped up so much in the game, I 
This is going to sound weird, but I think I have a little bit of a gift for, for seeing it in others. And yeah. I think athletes recognize athletes. Sure. And the, particularly the, the somewhat negative stuff and the over-identification with the game. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see it in the, some of the kids I work with. I see it in some of my former teammates. I see it in athletes that I cross paths with. Yeah. And I think that over-identification is something that needs articulating. And that's, that's why that answer was in the, in the book. Yeah, yeah. No, it's powerful. And um, I always think it's unfair. Just people in general are just defined exactly by how they do. And, um, you know, it, it's wild. I don't think we think about that uh, enough. Uh, with athletes that 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 you know they're looked at too often as a commodity mm-hmm. or you know something that just entertains people and just the, the human being behind yeah. it is what's so powerful in this book. And this this is the, the over identification is a collective effort. Yeah, it's not just the athlete growing up and saying, "Hey, oh, I like this." Mm-hmm. It's their coaches. Mm-hmm. It's their parents. parents often, yeah. Yeah. not always, but not always. A, yeah. That's, that's there's always, always exceptions. I think there are some great coaches out there too that know how to address this. But the media, as you get older. Friends, family, it's, it's all combined to, to make the athlete. Yeah. So there's this thing, um, it's, it's, it's pretty well known, it's a, this idea that um, it, it, we touch on a lot in this book about retirement. And that's what this book is, is, is you being able to step away and look back after retiring and, and you know make sense of it all. But there's this theme that's out there in the world that uh, athletes die two deaths in their life. Um, and I'd like to take some more of the words from the book and put it in this uh, podcast episode. So there's a little part where you talk about retirement, and um, can I get you to read some, some of that? We often think the career starts when they start playing, and it ends when they stop playing. Yeah. But from my experience and from the experience of so many others that I talked to about this, the second journey of an athlete begins when they retire. Letting go of the game is often as hard as, as it was to play it. Mm. And so wow. some of what I want to address here deals with that. And this comes from, from the later chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. For many athletes, if not most, the decision to retire isn't an easy one, even if it's the most obvious and logical and irreversible path forward. This decision is agonized over, often for years, compounded by the fact that most athletes reach their personal peak without ever harvesting the sense of total accomplishment that only the rarest of athletes are lucky enough to ever feel. Every athlete, in a way, quits early. Put another way, every player dreams of being an alpha at the highest level, but very few are ever good enough to get there. Every player will, one day, inevitably fall back to earth and no longer be an athlete. Retired athletes become, by and large, books abandoned before the climax, movie reels ripped from the projector before the third act, or canvases removed from the easel before the image can fully take shape. That they were lucky enough to sit on the easel or have been loaded into the projector in the first place is of little consolation at the end, because from the time athletes first pick up a ball, they're instructed never to be satisfied with who they are at any given moment. Instead, they're instructed to be in constant pursuit of an almost unattainable future Mm -hmm. self. So when, at the end, they're all of a sudden dumped outside the theater, surrounded by a pile of half-finished scripts in the shadow of a life they're no longer a part of, constipated with unresolved feelings for their former sport, the inevitable reflective thought is one of failure. My last season was largely successful, 
and my team spent portions of it atop the league before sliding down to fourth place. Throughout, I played with both the freedom and the timidity of someone who knows the end is near. The last game of our season, the last of my career, was played on a dark day in May. A lone gray cloud seemed to follow the team bus from the hotel to the gym, parking itself ominously above the arena. On the court, throughout the game, my mind detached from my body, and I played the first half with my consciousness hovering somewhere over my left shoulder. When my mind did communicate with my body, it was my mind telling my body not to get hurt. In the locker room at halftime, I found myself calculating, as a percentage, how much of my career I had left. I tallied the number of games I'd played each season, starting with my senior year of high school and up through four years at Davidson and five abroad. The two quarters left in Cormend, or so went my estimate, signified the remaining 0.2% of my basketball career, more than I expected. That the percentage would soon be zero was surreal to me, impossible to understand in percentages or otherwise. In the second half, the thought of unnecessarily blowing a knee so close to the end deterred any lingering urge I possessed to compete. A three-point attempt from the far right wing was my last official statistic. As soon as that shot bricked, Coach Eastvon pointed to a player on the bench, and at the next dead ball, how appropriate a phrase in this instance, I slapped that player's hand, walked to the end of the bench, put on my warm-up top, and sat down. And that was it. There would be no game winner for me, no retirement ceremony or standing ovation from an adoring crowd. Not all of us can go out like Jordan over Russell, once follow-through held aloft for perpetuity, or like Jeter, smacking a walk-off and cementing a legacy at the end of a year of over-the-top farewells in every ballpark in America. Some of us simply go out, as silently as a candle. You fade and fade imperceptibly, and you don't notice you're gone until you look up to see you're no longer there. And you really are gone when you retire, as an athlete is all you've ever really known yourself to be. Immediately after my final professional game, expecting to feel immensely relieved, I was instead greeted by the numb sense that I had, despite my lifelong investment in the game, somehow failed. As silently as a candle. That's really, that, 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 I always get chills with that whole thing. That's Thank you. That's intense. Awesome. Thank you for reading that part. That's really good. Uh, it's really, really good. It, it, it's, it hits and it, it, it makes you realize just how intense of a moment it is actually stepping away from that whole thing and life changes forevermore. And it that. changes often in an instant. Yeah. And you don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah. The very few players get to choose when they quit, yep. a, quit yep. a sport. Yeah. And most of them quit because they got cut yep. or because they are injured yep. or yeah, because they taken from yeah. them in a way and li- literally at the sound of a buzzer you go from being an athlete mm-hmm. to not being an athlete yeah. in an instant yeah and it's not your choice you can't paint your exit yeah. you can't do it there's, wow. no, there's not very an exit strategy where all of a sudden you can like start to tone down your playing yeah. time or anything like that yeah. you're going as hard as you can and then it's over <laughs> just <laughs> like G- that Jeter thing you mentioned that's just crazy how, how his career ended like that yeah. I mean his whole thing was so storybook, and yeah. but that's not how it is. That's not, that's not how it that's is. That's not reality. I would definitely pick Jordan over Russell as my yeah, yeah, as the one, <laughs> as the one. That is as another just really, really crazy. Um, so the subtitle we won't we won't count Jordan's comeback either. As no, no, no. That's not. That, yeah, I've been <laughs> yeah. Um, the subtitle of the book is "Dying to Love a Game." Um, 
and you know on the surface uh, that could be read a lot of different ways but um, I know that was something that was so purposely chosen by you the dying definitely, definitely. dying word um, in the subtitle uh, can you tell us why in the in the weeks leading up to the book's release mm-hmm. as I started to share the book with mm-hmm. with friends and family there was some concern about some of the subject matter, particularly the suicide attempts that I talk about in the book yeah. and the way death plays a, a bit of a theme, yeah. both metaphorically and in mm-hmm. a, a very literal sense. Yeah. And uh, I was made aware that publications as grand as the New York Times have protocols that they follow when they talk about suicide yeah. and when they talk about yeah. death. and. You know, even my mother was concerned that I was going to scare away some of the readers yeah, <laughs> in, in, if I talked about death in the book. Yeah. But I think that's, you did, that's a, uh, an example of where we've kind of gone wrong. Death mm-hmm. is such an, a natural part of life. Yeah. And it's... This country what, does not do well with it. We do yeah. not. And yeah. when we shield death from our kids and from ourselves, mm-hmm. we miss part of what it means to be alive. Mm-hmm. I think some really wise people have said that until we know what it means to die can't, we, do, we don't live, know what it really means to but live. it means live yeah I, mean, I think the Buddha said of all the meditations of death is the greatest oh, wow. and that's that's wow. something that I, I struggled with growing up I was very scared of death mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I still am I still struggle with it honestly yeah. and, and, I, and I believe I always you know not to put blame anywhere but on myself but uh, I believe culturally it was always pushed away from from um, from from us and, and me in particular, and so like I never like like my meditations about it uh, are, are still occurring to this day because yeah. it was something that was never really you know Definitely. in my mind. Uh, and this is this is only a, a, a recent thing. So yeah. up until maybe seven, 70 years ago, people died in the home. People saw all the gruesome stuff that was associated with death. Children were called into the deathbed mm-hmm. and taught us just a very very natural part of of being alive. And then maybe 70, 80 years ago, people started shifting to hospitals to die. Mm-hmm. Many other people have documented this better than, than, yeah, I, than yeah. I will. But then we started to sterilize death. It started going behind closed doors. Started going behind yeah. closed doors. We mm-hmm. kept kids away from dying. Yeah. And so these kids grow up like myself and I think like you. Yeah. Like a, a, it's totally afraid and yeah. not really getting the, the full sense of what it means to die and what it means to move on and yeah. so on. It was shielded from being a part of life. Yeah. In ways, and I mean, as, as troubling it is a part of life, I, I love the idea that the, the accepting it more and talking about it more is going to contribute to life. Yeah. And yeah. It helps more people feel alive. Yeah. So the suicide attempts that I talk about in the book uh, relate to a literal sense of death mm-hmm. and the fear of death. But there's also the idea of death as a metaphor, yeah. which is one of the reasons I very deliberately chose the word dying mm. to put in the subtitle, mm-hmm. dying to love again. And the the point of that would be that when I retired and often when I played, I had a very love-hate relationship to the game. I was never able to fully embrace mm. basketball. It was just too complicated. I wasn't self-aware enough. I didn't yeah. know the game, the game enough. Mm-hmm. And then throughout my retirement and, and in the course of writing this book, I realized that to love the game, I would have to to, to kill off, metaphorically, older versions of myself yeah, yeah. and to be able to come anew to the game and to appreciate myself in the game. And so that's where dying in the subtitle comes. And I think there's a lot there's a lot more in the book that discusses the multiple deaths that athletes die. Mm-hmm. The first death you die when you 
quit playing the second die you death you die naturally yeah. but I also often think that that phrase is a little bit wrong because athletes don't die when they quit playing or the majority of them don't die it takes a very concerted effort in retirement to let go of that that previous self yeah yeah so I think we can we can come up with a better phrase Definitely. for athletes instead yeah. of every athlete dies twice yeah. every athlete needs to die twice yeah exactly. should die twice to yeah. become a human being yeah looking more as an opportunity or something yeah like that or just like yeah another door opening yeah. instead of a door closing so dramatic. you can look at that people who were married yeah. if they want to move on people who've been in a long relationship people that have been in an abusive relationship people that have been in an occupation for mm-hmm. someone to become someone different you yeah. have to let go of the person you were before yep. I think that's especially tough for athletes because it happens at such a young age yeah. if you take someone who's worked in a particular field for 50 years yeah. and retire at 65 uh-huh. you know, that, that identity is secure enough it's going to carry them however much longer they have but we're looking at athletes who are 18 years old that have played the game since they were 6 yep. they're 22 years old yeah what, what's the uh, uh, lifespan of a NFL player what is it like yeah. two and a half three years and a half or something years, three and a half years I mean that's they're, so they're, they're, they're that death or is what's coming in like early 20s yeah. or something like that and they're redefining self but the idea of looking at some of these endings as beginnings is a fun way to look at it um, to bring this home and because they're about to kick us out of this hotel room um, and uh, that was awesome by the way this, the, those ideas that's, that's something uh, that the depth in this book I, I know a lot of people are going to see the cover or know that you're a player and just look at it as a basketball book but this is not just a basketball book this is this is an examination of a, a, of, a, a, of you know how complicated human beings are and just just you know what we all face this is this is, it's a very human human book in, in the best way which I love Thank you. but to bring it home as I was saying um, what do you what are your hopes what, what what are you hoping that readers take away from this I mean you know obviously everyone's going to interpret it their way they want and there's a lot to take from it but what, what, what's your hope with this one so the, the hope for readers in general would be to help start a better conversation about mm-hmm. so many issues relating to sports and to humanity so whether that's mental health what it means to be masculine what it means to retire mm-hmm. those are all things that I hope this book doesn't have all the answers to but contributes a better conversation towards. Yeah. Their book is divided into two sections. Mm-hmm. The first section is the bounce, which talks about playing career. And so for younger listeners, I would encourage them to start start there and to read about all the things that I wish I'd known and about becoming myself as a young player and not over-identifying with sports. And yeah. the second section is the echo, which talks more about retirement and moving on from, like we talked about mm-hmm. uh, uh, occupations or relationships yeah. that need to be let go of yeah. in order for a human being to remain or even become yeah. healthy. Yeah, that's great. And no, the, I mean, these are these are dialogues, conversations, ideas that I think really, really need to be uh, explored. Um, I just want to say personally, uh, it's been such a joy working with you on this book. And, and likewise, and, Michael. And, Thank uh, you. And I, I commend you on a lot of things. Um, you know. I do these podcasts a lot and, you know, I write some and I, I put myself out there a little bit so I know how it feels. And it's, 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 it's not always easy. And, and so it's, it's, it's very commendable and brave that they put some of these ideas out there. Thank and you. I know a lot of people 
uh, are, are going to be helped from it. So, bravo. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks I really, for having I really me. appreciate it's, it. It's so, a pleasure. Yeah, I'm sure we'll do it again at some point. So, thank awesome. you. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening and uh, taking another trip with us across the margin. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.